Bill, it's it's funny because we recorded Friday. Yes, with the idea that we were Fourth of July right ish, and it's the third of July, and we're recording again. Yeah, well, we didn't quite think through it. Yeah, yeah. Happy That's birthday! Today's my mom's birthday. Oh, well, happy birthday! To your happy mom. birthday! And seven score and. Fourteen years ago today, the Battle of Gettysburg ended. Seven score. I'm just trying to do, you know, kind of Lincolnish. It's 100, 100, 154 years ago. So seven score, seven. I knew that was twenty. Right. All right. Okay. All right so, I did that in my head. All right. So this was uh, the infamous Pickett's Charge. You know, I actually just went back and looked at that battle because I was thinking about it, and I used an illustration yesterday uh, from the thinking about July second, uh, eighteen sixty three. Um, it's still the largest land battle ever fought in North America. 170,000 troops participated. Almost one in three troops, uh, one of the three participants did not walk away from that. Either there was a hundred and, or there's 50 some thousand casualties, which includes those missing in action. So, but anyway, it's, um. What do you think Pickett would have tweeted the night before if there was Twitter? He had been excited the night before. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the tweets change. Yeah, the tweet, bit. but almost immediately he blamed Robert E. Lee. So until his until his dying day, he was bitter, and it was a it was a it was a full hearted uh, doomed uh, military tactic from the beginning. And uh, but nonetheless, uh, I was reading. Uh, it's it's again, it's a whole different thing. I mean, even I mean, you could they were shooting artillery and stuff, but. Um, a very different kind of war when you can see the enemy. You know? Yeah. And uh, it was, what's fascinating, too, I mean, this kind of even ties into what we're going to maybe talk about today in, in that, you know, almost immediately um, after the Civil War, you had multiple tracks. I mean, you had Reconstruction that just made things worse the way it was conducted. Within a few years after the Civil War, you had the KKK being formed. Uh, one of the great heroes of the South, Forrest, was part of that group. But at the same time, you had these reunions. You had these kind of strange, and where there's there's film uh, of these re, of these reunions. Um, and, you know, they had them into the teens and, you know, even into the 20s where North and South people, particularly at Gettysburg, got together. People have fallen on either side of that and came together. Matter of fact, there's moving pictures of soldiers that were Confederates and those who were Union missing limbs, you know, kind of embracing across the line. Matter of fact, they actually re there was one film I saw from, I don't know, it's like early 20s, late, you know, uh, teens, but probably in the early 20s. 1920s, where they actually reenacted Pickett's Charge. And the con Confederates come across, and when they reach the Union line, you see this film of them embracing and weeping. And so, you know, uh, <laughs> there can't be reconciliation. Again, I don't want to over-romanticize because... Um, I don't think... I think you're seldom accused of over-romanticizing. <laughs> but, I, you know, is there... There are ways forward. There can be there can be reconciliation, and uh, uh, we certainly I don't know maybe it needs to get worse before we can be again talking about that. But um, 
And for a different take on the battle, I would say check out Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. That's a great movie. Uh, that movie is so good. It's such a great movie. I mean, I kind of went into it with some skepticism, but as far as a vampire historical fiction remake, it's pretty amazing. I just had this image of I being Shelby Foot talking over here, and you're Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> so, so there, those of you, those of you listening at home, if you want to picture that image, uh, there we go. It's so good. It is so good. It is so good. I can't. I can't express how much I like that film. Again, surprise. I kind of went into it not enthused, but like I came out of it a big fan. All right. Well, there we go. There's that would be for those of you looking. What can I do to honor America tomorrow? You have your endorsement from Scott Jones. Watch Abraham Lincoln Vampire. You will Slayer. not be disappointed. Yeah, I, I will be disappointed because I'm not going to watch it. It's your loss. It's your loss. It's free. I'm sure you can download it, stream it free. It's your loss. Great acting, great concept. All right, there we go. So let's talk a little bit about secularization. The big term. In America, it was founded to be, in some ways, a secular state, but of a very particular yeah, kind. kind when we a friendly, say, a friendly secular. Right. When we say secular, we are talking about there are secularisms. And we, I found this article, which is reprinted from February of 2008, that Peter Berger wrote from, for First Things. I'm sure they reprint because he died last week, right? Peter Berger, actually. Hmm. Uh, early last week. I, I did not know Yeah, that. he just passed away. So I'm sure they kind of reprinted it because of his recent death. And and you're just one of the most important sociologists of the 20th century. Yes, yeah, you know, very influential. In, yeah. any, in any, I mean, you, yeah, I mean, I think that that's uncontestable. Uh, so he talks about, in this article called Secularization Falsified, he talks about how modernity is not intrinsically secularizing, although it is in, it is intrinsically pluralistic. Right. He thinks one of the features of the modern world is you often wind up with a plurality of religions and mythologies, points of view, systems of value alongside each other. Right. But when it is secular, he thinks that it has, and he thinks that within this sort of pluralism, it, it Modernity is not anti-religion. Religion has thrived. I mean, that, you know, Harvey Cox right in the sixties wrote that book, The Secular City, mm-hmm. and he had to revise it, Religion in the Secular City, because <laughs> he was so wrong. And you know, they they talk about how basically there's a different kind. He, he talks about there's different kinds of secularism. There's one that basically is re- the state is religiously neutral. And he says, you know, the Christian church in pre-modernity, we talked about this last episode, has has a conception of this, the, the doctrine of the two swords, right? right. Mm-hmm. That, was that Gallic? Who was the Pope? It wasn't Gregory. It was uh, it's like sixth century doctrine of the two swords, right? I, I thought it was later Fifth, than that. Uh, seventh? Innocent? Is it innocent? I didn't think it was Third. Uh, maybe it's earlier. Anyway. What if there was something I could do where from an electronic device, I could look up with rapid pace... <laughs> That's, that's just crazy talk. Uh, doctrine of the two swords. Well, it's an extension right. of the two cities. It's an extension. Right. right. But who actually says it? Well, what, Pope Boniface. Ah, Boniface. Well, it's explained by, well, I feel like it goes, he's saying 1230. No, no, it is Galatius. Sorry. Boniface explains it later. Uh, in this, 494. It's 494 Pope Galatius. I was right about it. All right, very I good. think I mispronounced it, but I was right about it. That's pretty good for me. That's, that's good. Now I concede. You got that. Uh, so basically, Berger acknowledges that there's something like this in the history of Christianity, that, that the two swords, that, that the church sort of wields the word of God and is shepherding people's souls, and the state has the action, the sword of, you know, the literal sword, 
that meaning force to restrain and protect its citizens and from, yeah. from, from attacks inside and externally. Right. Uh, except in certain parts, like Spain is maybe one primary example, but, you know, the church cannot put anybody to death. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it was always the secular authorities, who, you know, even the Inquisitions, it was always... The a- Inquisition, <laughs> what a show, the Inquisition. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so Berger says there's a sort of secularism that doesn't intend to limit religious expression at all, but just to make make things, make sure that there's no, that, that the state remains neutral on matters of religiosity. There's a second kind. Well, and, and his prime example is us. Is the United States. The United yeah. States. What the USA. USA. It's what the founding fathers, who were not particularly, they weren't Christian, but they weren't anti. Some, some were, some, some were. But even the ones who were Enlightenment deists. I mean, it's very interesting. Ben and, Franklin used to bring George Whitfield in to preach, and he would stay with with Franklin. Frank, Franklin said that Whitfield could make you weep just by saying Mesopotamia. Right. But he thought he didn't need this kind of stuff. But it was good for the people. Good for the people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it, again. It, I mean, the religion of the founding fathers is a interesting topic. I mean, Jefferson, Madison, both had great suspicion of clergy and and an established religion. Um, George there's Wa- a really terrible book about George Washington's uh, piety written by a local seminary president, right, which has, shall remain Which totally, 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 uh, that is maybe one of the most fascinating fraud. Glenn Beck put that book on the map. He had, yeah. he had uh, this one who, it's not the one who shall remain. <laughs> and, hey, shall by way, and I debated him one time in public. Lillibeck? All right, we named him. Uh, you me, Lillibeck? Yeah, really? yeah, for the Philadelphia Inquirer. That guy, like, that's one of those things where had he not been on that Glenn Beck show, that one, that was when Glenn Beck was like, his ratings were through the roof at that five o'clock yeah. question. Had he not been on that show, that book would not yeah. have gotten. He's not a bad guy. The book's a fraud. Yeah. Yeah, it's a total yeah. fraud. Yeah, yeah. but a lot of good people are right. I mean, it. again, I'm not, I mean, George Washington gets to have whatever faith he had or didn't have. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's it's funny in the show, The Turn, they find out that one of the, that actually the spy, it's spying for the British is the clergyman and so it's the minister. And, and so he's going riding out to meet his British contact. And Washington's like, just kill him, do it quietly. It's a shame. I rather enjoyed his sermons. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's a shame. So, um, so we have a moderate, moderate and favorable approach to religion in general, and you have a, a separation of church and state. The second type is characteristic he thinks of France, and it's actually characterized by an anti-religious animus, at least as far as the public. I role spit of in your general direction. <laughs> in the general direction, we oui, we. Oui. Uh, the second type of secularism uh, with is where religion is considered a strictly private matter, and it can be it has harsher and more benign forms. French Revolution, harsh, harsh, form. <laughs> harsh very harsh. <laughs> but in contemporary France, it's a little more benign. Religious symbols or actions are rigorously barred from political life, but privatized religion is protected by law. So it's really interesting if you are a Muslim. In England, which has an established religion that where the monarch is the head of the church and, you know, the prime minister actually appoints the head of the Church of England. You have more. What is, what is, I'm waving like the Queen of England. Oh, the it's, you know, there's no there's no video in it. Bill Maher said, you know, he's taking July off and he was saying the stories that will happen everywhere off. And one is just picture of Prince Charles uh, pushing his queen down the stairs. Damn it. It's my effing turn. <laughs> that woman is not going to die anytime soon. She's healthy as a horse. Right. So in England, actually, with an established church, 
You have more freedom as a Muslim for of religious expression than you do in secular France. Yes. Because you can wear a hijab in England. You can do all that stuff as you can here. In France, even though it's more, it's the far more secular than England or, or and even the United States. It's there's less religious freedom. Now, again, it's not barred, and you can practice it, but you can't. You can't wear a cross, uh, a yarmulke, hijab, things like that in in schools. Right, know, like those things are prohibited. And then the third type of secularism is anything but benign practice in places like the Soviet Union, <laughs> where, <laughs> where it's not just that that religion must be privatized, but repress stamped out i mean you can only you know they can't say you can't have certain ideas in your heart but you cannot express them no again there was some churches that weren't closed and things like that but in general the approach in the soviet union most communist countries is not incredibly favorable so it's funny too because he says that some he makes this um he says that some people in the aclu also share this viewpoint and well he, t- he tells this old jewish joke about a man trying to enter a synagogue during the holidays the usher stops the man and says that the only people with reserved seats may enter you know it's because it's a packed day but it's a matter of life and death says the man i must speak to mr shapiro his wife has been taken to the hospital all right says the usher you can go in but don't let me catch you praying. <laughs> and this punchline accurately describes the ACLU's position on any provision of public services, from school buses to medical facilities to faith-based institutions. Well, well you know, I would have to say, you have mentioned, uh, mentioned Bill Mora. I think he is dangerously close to that position. He, think, he sees religion as a dangerous thing. Yeah, but he's a free speech guy. So I mean, he's definitely type two, I think. I mean, he, I think he probably, although he's such a free speech guy. Uh, you know, my, yeah, my, I guess there's a sense where, I mean... The sons and daughters of Freud uh, and Marx show up in lots of different places, and they sometimes rhetorically in certain institutions, including um, you know, I mean, it was uh, there. Was, I was a psychology major, so there were definitely some part, some stage three or type three people in certain departments in in higher education who saw religion as not only uh, something that is out of style, but something as a threat to, to thinking. Yeah, and I guess that's where, like, if you're American, maybe you can hold that position and yet defend people's right to express it, even though you think it's... Yeah, I think there's been some people who whose uh, xenophobia against faith uh, has been in tension with their convictions about free speech in America. I mean, uh, and those... You know, all those stories and all those antidotes are part of what feeds, you know, does the feeding frenzy for the religious right, you know, and yeah, whether it be, you know, so it, 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 it you know, the intellectual elite that often are criticized and occasionally we have a, a troll that accuses us of being part of it. Uh, Mostly you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, maybe I'm implying it, but I guess in this trolling, but <laughs> I would like to be trolled more. But all right. Not. Everybody, please, if you've just heard that. Help! It would make Scott stay if you say. Ah, I'd love it if you say awful, horrendous things about. I him. love it. I like yeah. being horrendous. Yeah. Me, not so much. I'm okay. I'm okay. My my goal is to have uh, Donald Trump put my face on the Vince McMahon thing, like he did with CNN, and body slam me. That would be cool. <laughs> Talking to Fetz, uh, our president, fake fighter. He's a fake fighter. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating. He's, that- a, he, he, he's a, I mean, he's the quintessential bully. It's a pretty. It's pretty funny. By the way, I, I make. I want to have a suggestion out there. Uh, I am now practicing a Trump Shabbat. 
where uh, on the Lord's Day, I am not reading or trying to think. It makes it, it's hard to read the New York Times and skip over those sections. Uh, and I skip Sunday news shows, but uh, it's not helpful. It's just not helpful to continually feed into the, the feeding frenzy on either side. So that's a little suggestion out there. No I, cost. on the other hand, take in twice as much Trump content on the Sabbath <laughs> as a form of recreation. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what he notes that Berger notes that all of these secularisms are being vigorously have have and are vigorously challenged even moderate forms right right you have you see this you know the the president actually was at a faith and freedom rally is it pastor jeffrey's church Uh, uh, first presbyterian or first baptist Baptist in in texas Texas, Texas, dallas Dallas. but it was interesting because he talked about how i just just before this is america last night i was watch fireworks and they were trying to play music along with it but it was the fireworks were interesting. It was in a, uh, a suburban community in New Jersey, but they were playing a different soundtrack. And we went from Lee Greenwood's "And I'm Proud to Be America" to um, oh gosh, what's her what's her name who who uh, used to be Hannah Montana? Uh, She's like the pop girl that I takes forget. her clothes off. Anyway, but it was like living in the USA or whatever, a song about dancing in the USA. They went from Lee Greenwood to her. There you go. All right, this is, by the way... Yeah, another reason I don't go to fireworks shows. Yeah, fireworks are good last night. Yeah, they, they were just like every other fireworks show, I bet. You know, maybe... Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. Oh, Miley Cyrus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was, she was Hannah Montana, or Hannah Montana. And I like show. Miley Cyrus. Well... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's saying I do. I like summer stuff. So, it, it's interesting. You saw the president was at this rally and was saying something like, you know, our values, our freedoms, and our God. Now, it's very interesting because you would have people... Like I can think of presidents of both parties in recent memory over the past several presidential administrations talking about saying God bless America, or talking about everybody the says God bless America, of, right, the significance of faith and values. But like it was very much our it, it was a certain it, the 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 identification of the deity was a little more particular that no not particular in a confessional sense, like Christologically or. Uh, something like invoking uh, Elohim or something Judaic or something. It was, it was more like the God of traditionalists or something. I mean, it was very, it was interesting because I, I knew what, I knew what was meant. Yeah. I, I, do you think the people of the first Baptist church in Dallas realize when Donald Trump says our God, they, he's expecting them to worship him? <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, well, I'm not sure if they do or not. How, how would you, you could rewrite all praise choruses that way. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, there we you, go. you can, a lot of romance songs too. So, yeah. So that, I mean, you see that, although Berger says, you know, that, that makes the point that people falsely make the comparison between Sharia, the people that are Sharia advocates and, and, and how in America, very few Protestants or Catholics want any kind of theocracy set up. Despite, right. Despite right. that there's talk of, they, they probably want more religious expression. And of course, we can say Merry Christmas now. Well, you'll have to see though, because Trump is not president yet. So Obama was still president. This year at Christmas, we'll see if people at Macy's say Merry Christmas. And right. mission accomplished. And was that what in Alabama, someone, they had a statue of the Ten Commandments and someone ran over it like within 24 hours after it was, it was on the courtyard and somebody, it was a statue of the Ten Commandments outside the courtyard and someone took their car and ran into it. There was a big, you know, there was big stink saying he was protesting. I heard he was just texting, but uh. <laughs> yeah, it could be. So, you know, the, you know, he talks then about how, um, that's by the way, that, that would be how, that would be how Moses would drop the Ten Commandments now. You know, he's carrying him down the mountain while he's texting. And, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
And you know, it's interesting too because he talks about how uh, how people. It's hard to figure out in conflicts around the world around religion how religiously motivated the people are, and this is a big debate, right? Are people, for instance, Islamic ex- extremists? How much does religion motivate their activity? How much does politics motivate? And then he, he tells this great story by P.J. O'Rourke. Uh, <laughs> about how there are three groups in Bosnia. They look alike and they speak the same language. They're only divided by religion, which none of them believe in. He says, in other cases, Northern Ireland. And in this case, is again nicely illustrated by a joke. A gunman jumps out of a doorway, holds a gun to a man's head and asks, are you Catholic or Protestant? Actually, says the man, I'm an atheist. Ah, yes, replies the gunman. But are you a Catholic or a Protestant atheist? <laughs> I, I was in Northern Ireland right after the peace, Friday, Good Friday Peace Accords were signed, and I was on this kind of peace tour. And uh, a, a, something had just happened where there was Catholic school kids had to walk through a Protestant section to get to something. And this woman came out just cursing these kids. And uh, and the priest said, ma'am, you know, stop it. You know, aren't, be, a, you know, be a Christian. She goes, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Protestant. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so then he, you know, he talked, and then in the article, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But he he talks his interesting discussion of India and Israel and their constitutions, and and it, it challenges with maintaining a secular state, but yet, con- very consciously, a majority in both places, uh, India being Hindu and Israel, of course, being Jewish, and and the tensions that that well, and, brings. And, and you said this article was written, I read it too. It was written in two thousand eight. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating because what's happened just recently. In Israel, um, I mean Netanyahu. Uh, I, I don't. I think I don't think Netanyahu believes in God. I don't mean that as a pejorative sense. I think it's a point of fact. But how he stays in power, in part, is his coalition government yeah. with the religious uh, settler movement. And this whole recently, if you know, I won't get into all the details. But as a compromise, there was a section of the Western Wall that was opened. Um, for folks to uh, pray where women could lead prayers because that's the, you know, the women rabbis, there are no officially recognized female rabbis in Israel. Uh, and Netanyahu just shut that down. Uh, I mean, he, he, and part of it's simply spiting liberal American Jews or other things. But there's also this factor of this religious, the religious uh, segment or the religious element in Israel is, is, having a definite effect on on their politics. So, I mean, it's it's only more so in 2017, almost 10 years after the article. And the same thing's true about India that he wrote almost a decade ago. Yeah, pressure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'll encourage everybody to read this. It's a great article. Then he talks about how in the United States that there, he, he talks about how there's a contesting of what is perceived to be an increasing encroaching secularism by, and he notes, often court decisions, which are the least democratic branch of the government, you know, mm-hmm. in some sense. And he talked about, he talks about two clear flashpoints sparking the rebellion, both involved the court, 1963 prohibition of prayer in public schools and the 1973 uh abortion decision. And he says this, as a result, in a curious reversal of the earlier relation to class by the two major parties, Republicans won the allegiance of the religious rebels, and Democrats reflected the secular biases of the elite. In recent elections, it turns out, degree of religious commitment, Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish, was the single best predictor of how people were going to vote. And he says, I think the positioning of the two parties was accidental. It might have just as well been the other way around. But once the dichotomous identification we established, secularists and strongly religious voters both became important elements of the two parties. They supply the activists. People will write checks, volunteer in campaigns, or ring doorbells and address envelopes. Now, that's a fascinating claim that, 
he sees this as arbitrary. Like it didn't like before this before these like early sixties, you, you couldn't have picked clearly who was going to be the religious party. It just and they we've said this before in nineteen fifty. How often you went to church and where you yeah. went to church was not at all a helpful predictor whether you're going to vote for Eisenhower or not. It just wasn't. It, it just wasn't helpful. You know, it's a barometer. Now it's one of the more reliable barometers. But that's a very interesting thing. Well, you know, the shadow side of that too is along with. The prayer uh, and abortion issue was also, um, you know, the civil rights legislation. Uh, yeah, and segregation in schools. Right. I mean, so, the so the fact is that um, you know, uh, Bobby Kennedy had to use Republican judges uh, when he was Attorney General to get all their segregation, you know, desegregation yeah. stuff done because the Democrats were all segregated. Not all of them, but majority of them were segregationists. So it was Eisenhower's Republican judges that helped legally uh, begin to enact the civil, you know, civil rights movement from a legal perspective. But that switch after the Great Society legislation, after civil rights legislation, um, you know, someone said, well, after that was signed, Johnson was, Johnson said, well, you know, he was giving. We lost the South. The South for a generation. generation. Well, yeah. it's actually turned out to be two generations. Yeah. But again, this is the shadow side. Again, in all our loyal uh, reformed listeners out there, you can't, for instance, groups like the PCA. Now, it's a different entity now, but it was not just the theology that caused that division back in the 60s. And to deny that history, it's the same thing to die. I mean, you know, progressive denominations practice uh, the same kind of demigod politics that the conservatives do. I mean, we've, oh, absolutely. We've seen it. So, I mean, there's tyranny on the right, there's tyranny on the left, but it doesn't help anyone to deny the reality of your history. Yeah, and that's actually, that's the tone the article closes absolutely. on. He yeah. says, you know, there are fundamentalists of one stripe who think that religious tyranny is around the corner if a Christmas tree is erected on public property. There are fundamentalists of the other stripe who believe that the nation is about to sink into moral anarchy if the Ten Commandments are removed from a courtroom. In plain language, fundamentalists are fanatics, and fanatics have a built-in advantage over more moderate people. Fanatics have nothing else to do. <laughs> they have no life beyond their cause. The rest of us have other interests, family, work, hobbies, vices. <laughs> yeah, we too must be militant in defense of certain core values of our civilization and our political system. It seems to me that a very important task in our time, and probably at any time, is to be militant in defense of moderation. A difficult task, but not an impossible one. I love that. Family, work, hobbies, vices. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my good friend Adam Kessler, who's a, who I've done a lot of interfaith work, uh, he and I always say we need to reclaim the radical middle. You know, the the, the radical. Yeah, and in fact, yeah, the radical fringe now is uh, moderation, and I think that that's that's not good for the republic. Um, you know, a similar thing, and and I posted this on my Facebook page from Halleck. Uh, you know, it, it's in some levels it brings it just to the context of Christianity, where Christianity to turn its back on modernity, it was sink into bigotry and fundamentalist religion, and conversely, where modernity to turn away completely from Christianity, it would itself become an intolerant pseudo-religion. And I think Halleck's quote there actually is reflected in, in some of what Berger is saying. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, and Halleck is great on, I think, the just the whole kind of relationship between modernity and Christianity, and, and also some of modernity's leading antagonistic lights, like Nietzsche. I mean, his, his interpretation there is very sad. By the way, I get, I get, I got another question late last night on Facebook, which I haven't responded to yet, but it was yet another question asking where to start in Halik. And I, I, well, I mean, I would start, I mean, the three, I mean, he, he himself kind of set out this, the English, this is his English works, you know, the, page, the first book on patience, 
Or second, for, no, the first is on faith, Night of the Confessor. But it's about patience, being patient. No, but that second is second is patience. I thought patience was God's first, and Night no. of the Confessor second. No, yeah. I think Night of the Confessor is the faith one. Then the hope one is second, which is patience with God. And then the it's third love. one is love. love. Yeah. Well, anyway, it, I think they all build on each other. I think he he references patience with God more than Night of the Confessor in his yeah. work. So it. Uh, I, anyway, I do think the last one gives you i mean it would introduce you to the themes of the first yeah he two, builds right? on the yeah yeah, yeah the other two. so i don't you could i mean you could start with the most recent one i want you to be or you could read them in sequence or you could start in the middle there we've been no help <laughs> there you go so there you go everybody that's i read them in order i read night of confessor patience yeah i think it's a good way to do it yeah. i mean I, I mean then what i want you to be serves is just like a tying together and building yeah on. yeah so you can yeah. We, yeah there we go we just told you you could do whatever you want basically, which is, <laughs> this is our libertarians but so far you're not paying for this advice so don't complain, so, yeah, don't complain. <laughs> um so you know i was thinking too of something a book that i read several years ago called all things shining that i i book i think a lot of uh but basically by, by uh sean kelly and uh hubert is it is it I'm sorry, I, Dreyfus? I, I mean, I think it's Herbert Dreyfus. So Dreyfus was one of the top Heidegger scholar, scholars in the country. He died this year. Uh, he's old. I mean, he's older. He passed away. He was Kelly's instructor, and Kelly, I think, is the chairman of the philosophy department at Harvard. But they basically the, the subtitle of this book is "Reading the Classics in a Secular Age," and they talk about God being dead and what that means, and for for a pluralist society and they talk about the tensions of believing of finding meaning when you're when it's hard to think that your values are universal hmm. and, and and that when you're expected in a pluralist society to think that there are decent people that believe lots of different things and he talks about this tension of the, the David Brooks was critical of the of the book and saying well this is you know like people like this book and Jonathan Franzen's book Freedom says more about the cynicism and sort of quiet desperation of American literary culture than, you know, look at a lot of American suburban life and people live meaningful lives and do acts of service and stuff. And Kelly's like, well, maybe that's just uh, self-conceit, like just ignoring the, the, the deep existential questions and like sort of assuming a universality. And his, he says that um, Melville articulated a hope for a kind of polytheism, actually. He says, the new possibility Melville hoped for is a life that steers happily between two dangers, the monotheistic aspiration to universal validity, which leads to a culture of fanaticism and self-deceit, and the atheistic descent into nihilism, which leads to a culture of purposelessness and angst. To give a name to Melville's new possibility, a name with an appropriately rich range of historical resonances, we could call it polytheism. Not every life is worth living from the polytheistic point of view. There are lots of lives that don't inspire one's admiration, but there are nevertheless many different lives of worth, and there is no single principle or source or meaning in virtue of which one properly admires them all. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I'm uh, yesterday, uh, I was lectionary, the psalm for lectionary. Yesterday was Psalm 89, and I, I preached on that. And uh, Psalm 89 to me is a wonderful corrective and uh, kind of tragic object lesson. Uh, when you take the God of the covenant— the God who gives us God's faithful love, which for us Christians is revealed in Jesus Christ. Move him into the mythical God who conquers all of nature. Uh, combine that with he is the God of our king. And then, you know, the power of that narrative is toward, you know, in the third, the latter third of the psalm, there's this great disillusionment because in their mind, they collapsed the God of the faithful, his 
the God who gives us faithful love with the God who gave us the king with the conqueror of nature. And when the king gets killed and when the promises get broken, uh, there's a crisis of faith. And I think that there's always... Um, there's always a temptation for certainty, for to clean everything up, okay? Whether it's the fascist and the Spanish, uh, you know, Spanish Civil War, whether it's all the people that want to tell you when Jesus is coming back after Jesus clearly says no one knows, uh, or if there's someone offering a either some sort of utopian uh, liberal vision of what society could be or a call to a return to a greatness that never existed, Um the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus reminds us that uh, though God comes to us in history uh, and God is for us, that doesn't mean that history or our political pursuits are going to manifest that. Yeah, we want to be on God's side, not have God on our side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I think that also what I actually tend to be, I think, hopeful about the secularizing plural mode because i think it you know it gets gets back to halik's call to the Zacchaeus. i actually think the Zacchaeus come out of the woodwork and you know because we're at a place where it, it, where it feels like maybe there's a semblance of a naked public square where, where there there clearly needs to be a, a common sense of shared vision and values that like we talked about i think in the last episode and i think that Actually, I think th- this is a great moment for Christians to talk about faith and talk about what a gospel-shaped, you know, love uh, of neighbor and and sense of the common good is about. And I actually think that that the ground is fertile to speak that if it's spoken in the spirit of love and generosity. Yeah, I am optimistic and hopeful about the message, um, but I don't. I'm not hopeful about uh, where we're going as a society. So that means as Christians, we should tie our hope worth where it always should be with the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. The more you ignore me, the closer I get. You're wasting your time. The more you ignore me, the closer I you can